Good morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2? We're looking at verses 15 and 16 today, and we're picking up here. We're right in the middle of Paul's rebuke to Peter for behaving in a way that is contrary to the gospel. He is withdrawing himself from fellowshipping with the Gentiles because of his fear of the circumcision of Jews who might be upset with him for mingling and eating the same food uh, as the Gentiles were. So he's, he's pulling back from them, and Paul sees that and sees that Peter's not being consistent about the gospel, and so he's confronting Peter. And so we're right in the middle of that confrontation. And verses 15 and 16 continue Paul's rebuke of Peter. So let's look at Galatians 2, verses 15 through 16. Paul says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, takes a moment to explain why he is going to such lengths to clearly explain the doctrine of justification by faith. And this is what he says in his commentary. Quote, I am making such a point of all this to keep anyone from supposing that the doctrine of faith is an easy matter. It is indeed easy to talk about, but it is hard to grasp, and it is easily obscured and lost. Therefore, let us with all diligence and humility devote ourselves to the study of sacred scripture and to serious prayer, lest we lose the truth of the gospel, unquote. The difficulty which Luther talks about there of clinging to the gospel lies not in its complexity. The gospel is simple enough for a child to understand and to respond to with repentant faith. The simple truth of the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's simple. The difficulty instead lies in our own sinful tendency to proudly attempt to make our own way to God. We do not naturally want to humbly submit to God's way. Even once we do submit to the gospel and believe it and love it, we still feel ourselves to be prone to drift from it, just like Peter was drifting in his behavior. And as Paul sought to remind Peter of the truth of the gospel, so we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of its truth and of the fact that we have no hope without it. Last week, we saw Paul confront Peter about his gospel-denying behavior of withdrawing his fellowship from believing Gentiles for the sake of satisfying those of the circumcision. Verse 14 records the beginning of Paul's address to Peter. Paul's speech appears to run all the way through the end of the chapter. I know some translations end the quotation earlier, um, but I don't see any reason why the quote from, or this, the speech of Paul's doesn't go all the way to the end of the chapter. In this speech of Paul's, he reminds Peter of the gospel that they have both believed in. And he reminds him why, or tells him why, his behavior is confusing and wrong. 
I had originally intended to cover verses 15 through 21 in one sermon, but I thought it would be better uh, for us, for the sake of our understanding, to move a little slower through it. Uh, the first thing that, that Paul brings up in this speech to Peter is the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith. And he doesn't really pause to unpack that idea here, so I think it's, it's going to be better for us if we just seek to drill down into what, what that truth is, the truth of justification. And I'm hoping that the Lord will use this to strengthen our grip on this truth, this very important truth, this doctrine that Luther said uh, that the church would stand or fall in relation to, the doctrine of justification by faith. So we're just going to seek to drill down on what that truth is by focusing on these two verses, verse 15 and 16. So let's pick it up with verse 15. Paul here continues to address Peter by making a straightforward statement. He says, verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. He and Peter were born as Jews, not as Gentile sinners. Because of God's dealings with mankind, there arose a great distinction between two groups of men, two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews, or Gentiles. The Jews, as you know, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the three men to whom God made the promises that their offspring would be like the sand on the seashore, and that their offspring would inherit the land of promise, Israel, forever. God, as you know, rescued this people out of their slavery in Egypt by many miraculous deeds. And God gave to this people his holy law, which they were to obey in full. And because of God's dealings with the, this group of people, they became rightly known as God's chosen people. I want you to look at how Paul describes these people back in Romans chapter 9. So let's go back to Romans 9. In this section of Romans, Paul is pouring out his heart, sharing with his readers his earnest desire that the Jews would come to know their Messiah, their Savior, the Lord Jesus. He starts in verse 1 of Romans 9 by saying this, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Listen to how he describes this group of people. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Those are the, the Israelites, the Jews. The Gentiles, however, this other group of people we're talking about, did not receive these promises. You know, this, this list of description, descriptions that, that Paul talks about the Jews could not be said about the Gentiles. They did not receive these promises, nor did they receive God's law written on Ten Commandments delivered to them. Instead, the Gentiles were left to pursue whatever their hearts desired. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, where we will see how Paul describes them. And you'll notice that 
how he describes them is very different from how he described the Jews. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul is writing to Gentile believers, and this is what he says. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Two very different descriptions of of two different groups of people. So there was a real distinction between the Jew and the non-Jew, the Jew and the Gentile. But from this true distinction, many Jews drew a false conclusion. Many Jews thought that because they were Jews, that because they were physically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that they were therefore automatically accepted by God and destined for eternal life destined to enjoy the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They thought that that was all theirs simply because they were born Jews. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene and speaks to them in a way that's contrary to that expectation, it must have been like a slap in the face. Let's look at how John addresses the Jews. Let's go back to Luke's Gospel and chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 7 through 9. Luke 3, verse 7, says, So he, John the Baptist, began saying to the crowds, these are crowds of Jews who are coming out into the wilderness to hear him, to hear him preach and to be baptized by him, he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now notice what he says. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John was saying, in other words, that being born a Jew was not grounds for gaining eternal life. Merely having the law of God in your possession did not earn you eternal life. Jesus would say this to the Jews in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet, none of you carries out the law. What this means is that Gentiles were not the only ones who were sinners. The Jews were as well. And that reality is what leads Paul to say what he says back in Galatians 2, verse 16. So verse 15, he said to Peter, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now that's a long verse, but there's, 
there's a main statement there. There's a main idea, a big thought that Paul says, and it comes right in the middle of the verse. It's where he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. That's the main idea. And you can drop out the other statements and connect it right to verse 15. And if we do that, you get a a clearer understanding of what Paul's saying. He said in verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, and then insert that main idea. Nevertheless, even we, we Jews, you and me, Peter, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. The rest of the verse explains that main idea. Why has Paul and Peter believed in Christ Jesus, though they were not born as Gentile sinners? Why have they found it necessary to believe in Christ Jesus? Well, the other statements explain that. What does he say at the beginning of verse 16? He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. That's why he and Peter have believed in Christ Jesus, because they are not justified by the works of the law. And he reiterates this at the end of the verse when he says that even he and Peter as Jews believed in Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, what does it mean to be justified? Well, I'm going to give you a definition, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time proving from the Bible why that definition is true. Here's the definition. What does it mean to be justified? Justification is the act of declaring someone to be righteous. I'll read it again. Justification is the act of declaring someone to be righteous. It is declaring someone to be in conformity to God's holy standard. That's what it means to be righteous, to be in conformity to God's holy standard. And justification is the act of declaration that says that is true about someone. Justification is the act of declaring someone to be righteous. Now I'll seek to show you how we arrive at that definition from what the Bible teaches. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing, uh, seeing how we arrive at that definition of justification. Well, the first thing as we seek to arrive at that definition biblically, uh, the first thing we need to know about justification is that it is an act of God. It is an act of God. It is something that God does for someone. And that reality of justification is why in each of the three times that Paul speaks of justification in this verse 16, he uses the verb in the passive voice not the active voice. In grammar, you use the active voice to say that someone is doing something. For example, I threw the ball. I threw the ball. I am actively doing the verb that I'm using. I'm using the verb throw, and I'm the one doing the throwing. You use the passive voice to say that someone is having something done to them. For example, picture me, I'm a a nine-month-old baby. I am being thrown. I am being thrown. The action of throwing is being done to me. I am being thrown, thrown up into the air and caught like a little baby. So you see the difference there between the active voice and the passive voice. Well, in verse 16, each time Paul uses the verb justify 
He uses it in the passive voice. He says, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified, there the action is not happening to someone, but it's still conceived of as an action that could happen to you. Then later in the middle of the verse, he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified. Again, the action is happening to you. You're being justified. And then the end of the verse, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So each time he uses it, it's in the passive voice. Justification is something happening or not happening to you. And the implication is that someone else is doing the justifying, right? Whether by works or by faith. And who might that be? Who is the one in verse 16 behind the scenes doing the justifying or not doing the justifying? It's God, right? God. The works of the law and faith, they are the instruments through which that justification may come, but it is God who justifies So it's an act of God. The next thing we'll see about justification is that it is a legal declaration by God. It is a legal declaration by God. We are right to draw the conclusion that the one behind the scenes doing the justifying in verse 16 is God. We're right to to draw that conclusion because when God, when, excuse me, when Paul uses justification language, he most often uses it in its legal sense. To see this, let's go back to Romans 8. Romans 8, chapter, or verse 33 to 34. Romans 8, verse 33, Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, there's our word, Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? And we'll stop right there. Paul here uses courtroom language. And that's indicated by three words. You have the word charge in verse 33, the word justify, and the word condemn in verse 34. As you know, the charge is brought by the accuser against the defendant in a courtroom. And in that courtroom, Let me ask you, is the defendant in a position to justify himself or to condemn himself? That would be convenient, right? If if you accuse me of someone and you haul me into court, I could just say, "Uh, you know what, I decide to justify myself. I'll see you later. That would be convenient, but that's not how it works. Who is the one who renders the verdict of justified or condemned? It's God, right? And that's the case in Romans 8, 33 to 34. God is the what in that scene? He's the judge, right? He's the one who renders the judgment. He's the one who either justifies the accused or condemns the accused. He is the one who declares someone righteous or guilty. Now, what is the nature of God's condemnation or his justification? When God condemns someone or justifies someone, what exactly is he doing? What does it mean that he justifies someone or he condemns someone? Well, it'll help our understanding if we look at the Old Testament concept of legal justification. Let's go back to Deuteronomy and chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25 in verse 1 through verse 2. 
That says, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case, we have a courtroom scene here, and they, the judges, justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. Now in verse 1, who is being justified there? Who do the judges justify? The righteous, right? By justifying the righteous, is the judge making the person righteous? No, he is declaring the person to be righteous because the person is already righteous. Now, who is being condemned here? Who do the judges condemn? The wicked. By condemning the wicked, is the judge making the person wicked? No, he's declaring the person to be wicked because the person is wicked. The person is guilty of the charge in that scenario. You see, a judge was only supposed to pronounce a person guilty if the person actually did the crime. A judge was only supposed to declare a person righteous if the person was actually innocent of the charge. We see this over in Proverbs chapter 17. Let's, let's go there to see this standard that was set for judges. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. You know, that, a judge was not supposed to declare guilty someone who was righteous or innocent. A judge was not to declare righteous someone who was guilty. So we see in, in the context of Deuteronomy 25 that justification and condemnation is a legal declaration, just as we see it here in Proverbs 17. When the judge justified someone or condemned someone, he was not transforming the person into something. He was declaring or pronouncing the person to be something that is righteous or guilty. Now, this is the case with a human judge, but what about God as judge? What about God as judge? Well, let's go back to 1 Kings in chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. This chapter is where Solomon is offering up a prayer to God after he had built the temple and consecrated it to the Lord. This is his long prayer to God. And we're looking at verses 31 to 32. Solomon prays, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then, God, hear in heaven and act and judge your servants. How? By condemning the wicked, by bringing his way on his own head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Here we see the same thing as we saw with the human judge. God's verdict of condemnation or justification would be a legal declaration of wickedness or righteousness. God declares the person guilty or innocent based on whether or not the person actually is guilty or innocent. He's rendering his verdict in accordance with uh, the, the actions of the person. 
Now, does the concept change when we get to the New Testament? No, it doesn't. Let's, let's look at Romans again. Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Romans 2, and we're looking at verses 12 to 13. Paul here says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Here, God's justification is, is the same as we saw uh, in 1 Kings 8. It's the same as we saw in Deuteronomy 25. Here, God's justification is not making someone a doer of the law. Rather, God's justification is recognizing and pronouncing that someone is a doer of the law. So again, we see here that justification is a legal declaration about someone. Now, this seems to present a very big problem for us as sinners, doesn't it? And here we're going to delve deeply into the problem of justification. If justification is a legal declaration that is pronounced on the basis of whether or not someone is actually guilty or righteous, then what would we expect God to declare us to be? We would expect God to declare us guilty, right? We would expect him to condemn us because far from being righteous doers of the law, we are instead what? Apart from the Lord. We are wicked violators of God's law. But don't you see that that is precisely why back in Galatians 2 and verse 16, Paul says that he and Peter have believed in Jesus. It is because they know that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. Paul and Peter had believed in Jesus because they knew that by the works of the law, no flesh would be justified. Under the law, Paul and Peter realized they were sinners because they had not lived in conformity to the law. The charge of, of breaking the law that was brought against them was a true charge. They were guilty of that charge. They could not be justified by the works of the law. God could only declare them guilty. He could only condemn them. So you see, obedience to the law is not an option for gaining a right standing with God. If I'm relying on my ability to keep God's law in order to hear God declare me righteous, I'm going to be disappointed because I have not kept God's law and I cannot keep his law perfectly. When you read the book of Romans, that's, that's what chapters 1 and 2 are all about. In chapter 1, Paul shows that the Gentiles are sinners. And then in chapter 2, he shows that the Jews are also sinners. And then in chapter 3, Paul proves that argument by quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures that bear witness to that fact. Let's go back to Romans and we'll, we'll look at verse, or chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Paul, he doesn't just ask his readers to take his word for it, that Jews and Gentiles are sinners. No, he backs it up with scripture here in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Paul asks, what then? Are we, we Jews, better than they, they Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Where did he charge that? 
back in chapters 1 and 2. Now he proves it, verse 10. He proves the charge. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, regardless of whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When you read the Old Testament, you see that Jews were just as lost as the Gentiles were. When you hear the prophets um, lambaste the Jewish people, they accuse them of being just as bad or worse than the nations that were surrounding them. Verse 19, Paul continues. He, he draws a conclusion from all of these verses. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. All the world, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, not Gentile flesh, not Jewish flesh, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Back in Galatians 2, Paul is reminding Peter that he and Peter had abandoned law-keeping as a way to earn a right standing with God long ago. He and Peter had both truly come to realize that Gentiles were not the only ones who were sinners. Jews were too. Though the Jews had God's law, they had failed to obey that law. And so not even they could be justified by the works of that law. But the way that Peter had been acting, we saw that, remember, in verses 11 through 13, the way that Peter had begun to act contradicted that understanding that he had been brought to. Because by suddenly observing the Mosaic Covenant's food laws and from refusing to share a table with the Gentiles for a meal in the church, Peter's acting like the works of the law are a way to be declared righteous by God and to be accepted among the people of God. He's acting like that's how you get right with God. And until the Gentiles seek to get right with God that way, they have nothing to do with each other. Now to emphasize his point, Paul at the end of verse 16, we're, we're back in Galatians chapter 2, Paul here appears to allude back to a psalm. At the end of verse 16, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Let's take a look at Psalm 143 and verse 2, where we see a very similar thought to that. Most commentators think Paul is alluding back to this psalm and this verse. Psalm 143, verse 2. It's a prayer of David. We'll start in verse 1. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Verse 2. And do not enter into judgment with your servant. Why not? For in your sight no man living is righteous. In Paul's words, no flesh living is righteous. 
There's not a single person apart from the Lord Jesus who has ever given God's who has ever given God grounds to declare him or her righteous. David understood that by the works of the law he was not righteous. And so he's pleading with God, don't enter into judgment with me. I don't want to step foot in a courtroom where you are judged because I will be only condemned because I have not kept your law. So God, have mercy instead. Have mercy on me. Don't enter into judgment with me. Under the law, God as judge has never been able to pronounce someone not guilty. We are all guilty. Whether you're a Gentile sinner or a Jew, we all deserve to be condemned and to be sentenced by the judge of all the earth to an eternity in hell. By the works of the law, no one can be justified because we've all broken the law. So here's the problem of justification. How can a righteous God declare a sinner righteous? How can that be? I want you to notice a couple of statements in Romans 3 before we begin to consider what the solution to this problem might be. Uh, Look at Romans 3 and notice in verse 26 how Paul describes God. The end of verse 26, Paul describes God as one who is able to, at the same time, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now look at Romans 4, and look at how Paul describes God in verse 5. There he says that God is one who justifies the ungodly. God is one who can justify the ungodly, specifically the one who believes in Jesus. How can that be? What is the solution to this problem? Well, the solution is that God has provided another way to receive a right standing with himself. Another way for him to be able to declare you righteous in his sight. And that way is, as Paul repeatedly says in Galatians 2 verse 16, by faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 16, Paul says that he and Peter gave up all hope of trying to earn justification by keeping the law. They had found that the only way to be justified, the only way to be declared declared righteous by God was by believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, resting in Jesus, embracing all that Jesus is and says and does. But how does that work? How is it that God can declare someone righteous by faith in Jesus? Well, to find that out, let's go to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Here we find a summary statement by Paul giving us the solution to the problem. If you want a more drawn-out explanation, uh, read Romans 3 from verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter. You'll get a a more drawn-out explanation by Paul. But here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Paul takes that explanation and he, he compresses it down into this one verse, which is what we are going to consider now. Verse 21 says that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here, Jesus is described as someone who knew no sin. That is, he never committed sin. He was perfectly righteous before God. He had fulfilled the law of God perfectly, 
something that no one else has ever done or will ever do. This verse says that God made him, this righteous one, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. That does not mean that God transformed Jesus into a sinner. It means that our sins were imputed to him. What's that mean? It means that our sins were credited to Jesus. They were counted as Jesus's. That is why Paul says he was made to be sin on our behalf. It was our sin that was imputed to him. Jesus became our scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is. It's when you've done something wrong, you've earned a punishment, but the punishment is taken out on someone else in your place. That's what Jesus did. He gave himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. Now, why did God do that? Why did God send his son to accomplish that? Verse 21 tells us he did this so that, see the second half of the verse, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He did it so that Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness of God, would be imputed to us. That is, that this righteousness of God would be credited to us. Do you see that great exchange that's happening at the cross there? Through faith in Jesus, our sins are being credited to him while his righteousness is being credited to us. By God's law, we are what? We are condemned. But Jesus took our place under that law and as a sacrifice took that condemnation on himself. By God's law, Jesus was justified. And he's the only one that could ever be justified by law because he's the only one who fulfilled it perfectly. By God's law, Jesus was justified. But Jesus unites us to himself so that his righteousness that he earned by keeping the law of God perfectly can be counted as our righteousness. So in summary, how can God rightly declare sinners to be righteous by faith in Christ? Well, we can be justified by faith in Jesus only because Jesus was justified by law in our place and because he was condemned by that law in our place. All that the law requires of us, all that God's law required of us, um, including the obedience and the penalty, all that God's law required of us, Jesus fulfilled so that we could be free to be justified just by believing in him. And isn't that what Paul will go on to say later in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now this solution to the problem of justification might not seem right. After all, no human judge gets to do this, to let a criminal go free by punishing someone else. Well, we can be thankful that God is not bound by human limitations. God can do this. God's justice far outstrips the, the most upstanding human you could ever think of. And yet his justice is not violated by this. He is just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
But isn't this some kind of cosmic child abuse? God punishing his son for what we did? Well, don't forget that Jesus, as the Son of God, is God. Jesus did not go to the cross against his will. Jesus willed to go to that cross just as much as his Father willed for him to go because he is one with the Father. Now, God did not have to do this for us. We certainly did not deserve for God to do this for us. But he did it anyway out of his matchless grace. And in the words of In the words of Romans 4, verse 5, this is how God can justify the ungodly. This was Paul and Peter's only hope, and it is yours and mine as well. On the day of judgment, when we stand before the throne of Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, if we are relying on our own merits, on our own deeds, on our own acts of obedience to God's law, we will be condemned. We have broken God's law. We have not fulfilled it. And as the just judge, God will need to punish us because he is just and he must uphold his justice. But if we stand before his throne, relying instead upon Jesus and what he did for sinners, God will declare us righteous. And he will do so not because we are righteous in and of ourselves, but because his son is righteous And because God, through faith in his Son, has credited that righteousness of his Son to our accounts. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are are guilty. We have disobeyed your law. And even if we never picked up a Bible and read what your law said, we still would be guilty because it says in Romans 2 that you have uh, inscribed the 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 work of the law in our hearts. You've given us a conscience to to know instinctively what is right and what is wrong, and we have all sinned against our conscience. We have all done things that we know is wrong. And so even by that standard, we are guilty. We have offended you. We have broken your law. So we are guilty. We confess that. We confess our need to, to have your mercy. We pray with David, O Lord, don't enter into judgment with us, because no one is righteous in your sight. We are, we are guilty. We need a Savior. And we thank you for providing that Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he became a man. He who is God Almighty became a man. And he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled your law perfectly. He never sinned against you. He always loved you. He, he never had a, a wrong thought or motive. He followed you perfectly. And yet he went to the cross where he suffered and died the penalty of the law against lawbreakers. And he did that not because he broke the law, but because we did and he was purchasing our pardon. He was suffering in our place. He was taking the punishment we had earned upon himself so that through faith in him, his righteous life could be credited to us while our our sin and our just deserts of of punishment would be credited to him. And he satisfied your wrath on that cross. He paid the penalty in full. And then he rose from the dead. And that act of rising him from the dead, Father, was you declaring him righteous because he actually was righteous. And we thank you for that. We we praise God that Jesus is alive because that tells us that his righteousness is accepted by you. And therefore, 
His righteousness is enough for us to be accepted by you because you have clothed us with his righteousness. And because he is seated at your right hand, we know that through faith in him, the day will come when we can be seated with him. And again, it's not because we're righteous in and of ourselves. It's because we're clothed with his righteousness. Father, we thank you that through faith in Jesus, he is our righteousness and we are accepted by you on his account. We thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.